You're listening to the Australian Hunting and Beyond podcast with Matt. Where we talk about hunting, shooting, fishing, camping, and everything else that the great outdoors has to offer. Let's get into it. Okay, listeners, you uh, know my stance on 1080, so um, I'm super excited about the conversation and the guests that we have today because if you pay attention over in New Zealand across the ditch, there has been some amazing work going on over there in regards to 1080 by two people. Uh, However, we've only got one with us here today, but we've got Clyde Graff, one half of the Graff boys joining us. Welcome. Well, thank you, Matt. Yes, um, from over here in New Zealand, uh, happy to be with you. Firstly, really appreciate you coming on the show because you are quite a, um, I guess you've got a lot of experience with 1080 and some amazing documentaries and short films. I believe you've won a couple of awards for those as well. That's right, yeah, over the years, yeah. And Going through them, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep posting. If you're out there and you haven't seen them, I'm going to put them on my Facebook page and I'll, I'm going to share them throughout so you can jump on and see the links. Instagram's a bit funny, won't let me do it as well. But, geez, it's a bit of an eye-opener. Watching your docos and seeing some of the things get that go on, compared to what we get told about 1080, there is a big disparity in the information. Well, there is, and it's usually because uh, it's an industry Poisoning is an industry. Uh, there's a lot of money involved, uh, and unfortunately, introduced animals are classed as the uh, as the viable target, and that's what happens in New Zealand. It's happened for a long time. My brother and I, Steve um, and I, and our father who just passed away this year, but uh, we we've been producing um, hunting videos uh, in New Zealand here since 1997. And our first video was called Hunting for a Living, and it was a big sort of hit. Uh, we progressed through a lot of other videos selling in Australia as well over the years. Um, we even had Hunting and Fishing New Zealand produce a roaring machine, which sold in Australia as well. So, yeah, we've been in, we were involved for a long time in the hunting scene. And then in, I think it was 2006, uh, some people from Topo um, in New Zealand here were concerned about 1080 poison use and they asked Steve and I, we were invited to an evening and they asked Steve and I if we'd do a documentary on the use of poisoning in New Zealand. So we produced our first documentary in 2006, which was called A Shadow of Doubt. Um, it played twice on Maori television over here, which is a independent channel, I guess, um, and was well received. Uh, then a couple of years later, 2008, I think, we were filming in the Kaharangi National Park, uh, Fiordland, and we came across native bird, the weka, consuming a, um, a possum carcass, and there'd been an aerial 1080 poison drop. And over here in New Zealand, they spread the poison in cereal food from helicopters, and they drop it all across the forests and all across the waterways. And it kills everything that eats it, but unfortunately possums, well, that's the target. Possums, rats are the targets. Uh, deer, pigs, goats, um, goats to a lesser extent are, um, uh, uptake the poison, but deer, 90% of the populations are wiped out. And so anyway, we're filming that. And so we decided, cheapers, you know, we're meant to be ta- saving the wildlife, not poisoning them with secondary poisoning because 1080 causes secondary poisoning. 
in the wildlife that it kills. So we produced Poisoning Paradise in 2009, released that, um, won several awards overseas. No television station in New Zealand would play it. It was too controversial. And uh, we've been an enemy of the state ever since. <laughs> and uh, so our hunting career or, you know, sponsorships and things went out the door. And since then, we just thought, look, no one else really has the experience in filming out there in New Zealand forests and the effort that it takes because it's rugged country. A lot of it's rugged. We have a lot of experience. And so we thought we'd better just do the right thing and, and sort of try to show people and and the government and the communities what's going on with these aerial operations. And um, I'm afraid none of it's good. And it continues to this day. And in fact, it's it's growing. So that's just a brief uh, introduction. Yeah. So look on that, I've got a heap of questions to go through and, and uh, watching some of the docos, you've got some great footage of a variety of animals consuming the 1080 baits that have just been dumped. And one of the ones I really enjoyed, I can't remember which one it was on, but you overlaid the waterways over the map of where they dumped 1080 in the, mm-hmm. in the aerial dropping. And geez, there was some waterways in it. So, and that links back to some of your documentaries. Like you, you had one on trout being mass poisoned. Mm-hmm. Like one of the ones I looked at was when the eels were eating the possums in the water and and that was the other thing the amount of dead animals in streams that had died from 1080 and even the pellets and and having you know freshwater crayfish eating them like it's it just seems never ending and it, there's so many so much bycatch going on yeah so firstly the waterways you mentioned there so in new zealand there's rainfall a lot of rainfall so the waterways are flowing all year round and when the aerial operations are undertaken there is, in almost all aerial operations, there are no buffers to the waterways because there's a waterway every 100 metres kind of thing. It's just over every little hill and every little gully, there's water flowing. Uh, it's too difficult, and, and the Department of Conservation and the um, agencies that use the poison admit that it's too difficult to buffer the waterways. They can't buffer them and, and then hit the, the land areas um, effectively uh, without including everything. So they poison the waterways as well. Incidentally, the American warning label, which is on our website, which is tv-wild.com, has a lot of information about 1080, including flight charts and things, and warning labels. The warning label from America states that 1080, they only use a little bit of poison in America, but when it's used, all animal carcasses must be recovered and they must be buried half a mile away from any waterway and three feet deep, and preferably on the person who used the poison's property, no one else's. So in America, they have very strong regulations around the poison. They only use six teaspoons a year, very, very small amount. New Zealand uses around a tonne of pure poison. So in regard to the waterways, they have very strong regulations. In New Zealand, they drop the baits directly into the waterways. The animals are poisoned. They fall directly into the waterways when they die, some of them and they're left to decompose in the waterways, and they're toxic themselves. So the animal's toxic, the baits are toxic, and they just break down in the water. Um, I'm I'm an um, elected member of Waikato Regional Council here in New Zealand. This is my second term. I raise this issue, but it's like, you know, talking to a brick wall, because in New Zealand, so many people are um, brainwashed into believing that it's a, a safe poison when it clearly isn't. So in regard to the animals, you mentioned the animals. 
it kills 80% of the deer or 90% of the deer population. A lot of rats, a lot of possums are killed, and those carcasses are left to decompose where they fall and often into the waterways. So it's quite an obscene practice, and if the world could see what was going on, they'd be absolutely uh, shocked. They wouldn't believe it. It would be unbelievable, and yet it's happening more and more in this country every year. That's where I got in touch with you. I've been over here and doing my best to sort of try and raise awareness about what is happening because we're facing a couple of things here. Where, uh, there's just been a National Feral Deer Action Plan that has been released earlier this year. And on the back of that, a couple of weeks ago, there has been the release of a feral goat abatement plan. And both of them sort of, well, especially the goat plan is referencing the deer plan a lot. And the deer plan was very vague in using poison, but it was one of the main pushes is that they would develop or get approved a poison to be used. And now in this goat plan, they're basically saying that that's sort of, you know, they're alluding to the fact that we should be poisoning as well and it's an easy way to to bring it across and they've developed things called the aggregator which is basically like a bait station that has a grid so that certain non-target species won't be able to access the actual trap and feed i'm a bit skeptical on that and then you can also talk about how I guess other animals can feed on the corpses of the dead ones because they're not being taken away. So there's multiple elements that are impactful to the environment and to the animals on the landscape. Now, interestingly, over here, our own Western Australian government has published basically about 1080 saying that the further, I guess, towards the eastern seaboard, the higher the rate of intolerance to the bait that native animals do have. But they stopped at South Australia, which I'm not sure if you know much about Australia. It's uh, right in the middle, I guess, when you compare Western and Eastern sites. And that's where they stopped. So there was a real, there was a real large disparity between how much tolerance an animal could have in Western Australia versus South Australia, the same species. And then they stopped there. They didn't go any further. And I'm guessing that's probably because the tolerance comes because a lot of the plants that they use to derive the poison are from Western Australia. Do you know much about Australia, Clyde? Uh, I've lived in Australia for a number of years, over the over the years, but it's been 25 years since I lived there. So in the last year or so since my father's been dying, I've been back about five times. I'm heading back again next week. I hope to come back to Australia to live uh, full time. So if there's any um, opportunities for um, hunting shows or anything out there, Steve and I would be keen to um, get into that. So keep I'll put that out there. But uh, yes, we, we spend a bit of time in Australia. But in regard to tolerance of animals, the, the, the toxicity of the poison being used is far greater than any animal would be able to tolerate anyway. So I think that's it's, it's just not, I don't believe it's accurate. The other thing that's concerning is a lot of the bureaucrats may have good intentions, but I think they're being misled. So, for example, if they're getting information from New Zealand with regards to 1080, they need to be very careful about how they interpret it or how they accept it because in Australia you have a lot of wildlife that will scavenge, a lot of native endemic wildlife that will scavenge uh, poisoned carcasses, poisoned animals. And um, it's going to be extremely dangerous to... Uh, 
to that wildlife to be using 1080 in any form. Now, bait stations, you know, we, we talk about bait stations being targeted. So it is targeted to the animal they're trying to kill, but once that animal is killed, it is then a poisoned bait for a uh, predator or a scavenger. And so that's the risk. And, that, and of course, 1080 poison, including the contaminated carcasses, are toxic to insects as well. Birds that scavenge insects, uh, any animal that consumes, um, and I'm not sure of all the animals over there, but I know there's a lot that would, would go for that for the animals. So it surprises me that they'll consider it because deer, for example, are a big animal, and when, when they consume enough poison to kill them, they become a very big poison bait laying in the hills somewhere, and there's a lot of deer. Now, I do agree that you need a deer action plan over there because the deer population is increasing in a lot of areas. And I love deer. I love to see them. A lot of people like the deer. Some farmers don't like the deer so much because their crops may be impacted. But look, deer are only having one young a year, you know, or half a young a year. It depends on your population. And they are, well, you've got big country there. But in regard to farming, shooting is, is the way. Culling um, over here in New Zealand, it was very successful to export venison to other, other countries. And so, a, um, Private enterprise was a good way to go, and that's something that maybe you could look at over there. That maybe they are, maybe they have pigs over there have been sold for years. I don't know if it's, they still are, but when you start bringing in poison, that eliminates that um, private enterprise opportunity and it limits food sources. So that's the risk there. But I do think there you're going to have to do something with the deer. But I think you know hunters on the ground. Is a good way to start. Yeah, look, I am in agreement. I think that my position on it is that we need to keep numbers in check, just like anything. Any species needs to have numbers kept in check to, you know, maximise the quality of animals, make maximise their health, um, the spread of disease, the, you know, starvation. There's so many elements to it. I think we do it very poorly in this country at the moment that we are looking and fixated on going down the poison route or the aerial culling, which is just shooting and letting them rot. And I think that there is far more opportunity. And one of the things I think we definitely don't do very well, I'm from New South Wales. So one of the things I see is we have a lot of national parks where people don't really go off the trails. And that's the perfect opportunity to open them up for hunting. You know, if we're talking about baiting in deer, there's no reason we can't, instead of paying for, um, instead of using taxpayers' money, there's no reason that we can't be setting up bait stations and have people knock them off at night for thermal and, and harvest the meat. There's so many opportunities that we could use that don't involve poison. Yes, it might take some infrastructure. Yes, it might take some jobs. But isn't that a really good thing for the economy as opposed to just dumping a heap of poison into the environment? Like That just really concerns me. And you mentioned just a moment ago about the animals that are poisoned becoming massive toxic baits. That's one thing when I talked about the feral deer action plan that really concerned me is that if an animal eats the bait and then the latency because the poison doesn't directly kill them straight away it can take some time you as a hunter could just be super unlucky harvest that animal straight away not know about it and all of a sudden you could be eating that toxic animal we had the same thing happen here what was interesting about it was that for example there was there was a family in uh, Pataru, um this is probably four years ago and uh 
they became violently ill and went to hospital and were in comas. While they were in hospital, they were having convulsions, violent convulsions, and uh, they needed a lot of hospital staff to hold them down. They were in hospital and comas for about three weeks. Oh, sorry, comas for three weeks. Because 1080 poison over here is considered to be the saviour of wildlife instead of the killer of wildlife, the media got hold of this story and put out what I call false information about it and claimed that the three family members had been suffered a poisoning from um, botulism. So look, we've got a, we've got three video clips on our YouTube channel there um, and on the tv-wild.com site, which goes into this poisoning. And what happened was we've interviewed the family themselves. They did survive miraculously, but what had happened is they they were sold or delivered a wild pig that had died that had been poisoned with 1080. They consumed a small amount of it in their meal. And like you say, the latency period, so there's a few hours latency, which means they don't feel the effects of the poison. A few hours later, they felt the effects. All of them passed out, and it was quite a mess after that. The ambulances turned up, and they were taken to hospital, and they were in there for a long time. But the media stuck to the story of botulism. So there's another. we've got the three interviews regarding that case, and then there's also a case with Professor Ian Shaw for Canterbury University, who explains that it wasn't botulism, it was most likely 1080, which we understand, we know it is, 1080. But it was an interesting case because the media wouldn't let go, the government, the health authorities wouldn't let go, they wouldn't want to admit that it was 1080 poisoning. But the point you raise is that, there, yes, there is that risk for people to harvest the animals, and they could well be poisoned or sublethally poisoned. And this poison, is there is no antidote for 1080 for a fatal dose, and you don't want to sublethal dose either it's pretty awful so but look i think australia is at a crossroads at the moment you're in a position where you can assess the way to manage your deer populations and if you go down the 1080 poison route what will happen is it'll become a big industry and a lot of money will go into funding science and i would call it junk science that will try to support that 1080 poison is a good thing for killing deer when it simply isn't. It's unacceptable because it's inhumane to start with, the way that the animals die. But because of its persistence in the environment, because it's so, it's toxic after it kills, it goes on and on. So it's something that must not be chosen as a method of animal control in Australia, in my opinion. So hopefully you're at the crossroad where you can decide that Yes, we must not go down that route like New Zealand has. We've got too many native wildlife that are going to be affected. We've got too many people living in areas where you know their pets will be poisoned and you know the consequences are going to be too big. So I hope that you do choose the right path. But my warning is if you get the wrong people in charge, they will produce science to support their um, so-called science, to support their agenda. That's the risk. So I think on that, I've sort of being very vocal on that is that you can manipulate data to show what you would like. And we've already got that. So they already use 1080 over here for wild dogs and foxes. And there is a lot of um, anecdotal evidence about um, farmers and, and people losing pet dogs and things like that because something might have grabbed a bait and dropped it in a backyard or, or the like. So that's 
already concerning that the precedent has sort of been set and that the big push is there. One of my big concerns, not just for the animal welfare, but from a hunting perspective is that, you know, over in New Zealand, the EPA themselves, and this is coming from the um, the EPA.gov.nz, I've got the link and I'm happy to share it with anyone mm-hmm. that wants to have a read. But on their own site here, the New Zealand Food Safety Authority is saying that you should not basically take wild or game estate animals from an area that has had 1080 for at least four months after the operation has ended or two months after the operation has ended and after 100 millimetres of uh, rainfall. That to me is very, very concerning in that if that is our own governing bodies are saying this and then it is still being actioned and put out into the landscape, that's it just seems like a recipe for disaster that's just waiting to happen. That's on the light side as well, in my opinion. Um, it used to be six months. And as far as walking your dog through a 1080 poisoned area, you shouldn't do it within 12 months because the animal carcasses, a poisoned possum even, let alone a deer, but a poisoned possum, their bones are toxic to dogs. And so a very small amount of poison will kill a dog. So there's, there's many um, tragic stories in this country. Hundreds of dogs in some years are poisoned every year, pet dogs, and in this country. Yeah, so it's the EPA. It's a funny situation because what we're starting to notice here in New Zealand, the medical officer of health is someone that used to have to sign off the 1080 poison drops. They used to have to say, yes, we'll approve that, and you can drop it as long as you tell the locals and you know a few of the um, notifications are followed, etc. However, they've pulled back now. Um, they're, they're no longer signing the, uh, the poison drops off. And so we've got a case here in New Zealand where no one seems, no agency seems to want to sign it off anymore. So we're starting to think that maybe they're getting the message that this stuff is really causing problems. Uh, the poison's dropped, as I said, directly into all the waterways. A lot of the time, people downstream aren't even informed that the poison's being dropped in their water, let alone poisoned animal carcasses falling into the streams. And they're drawing water for months that's contaminated with pathogens and they're not, they're not sure why they're getting sick because no one's informed them. And that's a fact. No one informs them about the possibility of toxic carcasses in waterways in this country at all, apart from me and my brother. And it astounds me the way our councils continue to ignore it. But, you know, that's over here in New Zealand. Um, Australia, let's hope you guys are not going down that line. You, you don't have as much water. Over there, there's much running, you know, in all your valleys and stuff. I suppose you do in some of the forests. But uh, I can promise you it's no good for native wildlife. Well, that's what is really interesting, watching a lot of your documentaries and a target species being possums. Obviously, they're not native over there, but they are here. That worries me because are they going to be bycatch and are we not looking at already what's happening with 1080 here and really studying if our natives are impacted? Are we just sort of sweeping it under the rug and saying, oh, yeah, we're just going to use it? The other one, so I, I briefly talked about the feral goat abatement plan. And again, look, sometimes I take everything with a little bit of a grain of salt, but there's a um, ban1080.org.au and one of the things they say about 1080 poison is that goats can die up to seven days after ingesting it. Now, that one for me is very interesting because the 
goats seem to the markets mustering them up and selling them has sort of dropped so they're not worth as much money and it seems like an opportune time to try and wipe as many off the landscape as possible and i think this is where you know the the pushback from farmers previously when they were worth quite good money would have been high whereas now they're not really worth that much money so a lot of farmers want don't want them on the landscape competing for food they're pushing the 1080 as the option there for goats. But that concerns me because I, you know, I eat goat, more than happy to go out and shoot a goat and eat it. But then if it's in an area which has been beta for 1080, if this does get through, having it up to seven days afterwards, you know, that that's just, again, as I said, it's a recipe for disaster, but it's really concerning. And I feel that it's being overlooked at how many people eat game meat. And then also the contribution that hunters do for the economy here in New South Wales, we were, I think, fourth highest on the last data that came out from the DPI or Department of Primary Industries. So there's more to it than just the the poisoning of animals. There's so many flow-on effects which will be impacted if some of these things get through. Do you eat pigs over there in Oz? Wild pigs? Look, a lot of people do eat wild pig, uh, depending on the locality, because they are depending where if I personally wouldn't only in the fact especially from like sort of out west because they definitely eat a lot of carrion and things like that Um, however a few people I know do eat it especially if they know where it's coming from if it's coming off a good crop and things like that because they feel it's a bit safer so like each to their own regarding that but I definitely know there's an issue watching some of your videos that pigs consume it as well and my big one was which sort of shocked me a little bit was how many livestock like cows Mm. that would consume the bait and you know that's that has to be a concern for farmers which isn't being pushed out there by the the government or the organizations Mm. that are trying to push for the poison so over here the delivery system is cereal baits now two and a half baits it's reported will kill a human being 12 gram baits which are you know just nice you'll see some of them in our videos the size of the baits but cattle beasts we found that some research in America, it showed that two and a half baits will kill a 400 kilo uh, cattle beast. So every year there's uh, non-target species killed in this country with oversprays where they make mistakes and it kills livestock. Generally what happens when livestock is killed in New Zealand, it's kept quiet. You'll see videos of us talking to farmers, etc., where they're paid to keep quiet and uh, they don't want that information out into the public arena. And um, but it's a common occurrence, and it's is it's an issue as well. So, but it's the delivery meth- method that we're talking about here. So, how if they're going to poison deer, for example, is it going to be aerial drops with cereal bait? If it is, there's other wildlife that's going to eat it. I can't see how they're going to target deer. I can't see how they're going to target goats without by kill. And um, you know, if it's like New Zealand. You go into a virgin area, you get a lot of dead animals and birds. The issue we also have here is it's, you know, that say they're targeting the possums and the rats, but it's killing the kiwi. Kiwi are known to eat the baits directly. Kiwi, and they eat the baits. They also eat things that have been poisoned, like freshwater crayfish in the, in the streams or mice even. But not just kiwi. There's a lot of native birds that eat the baits directly. They eat the carrion the dead animals you talk about. They, there's a lot of birds in New Zealand that eat insects and get poisoned because the insects are fed on the poison baits or the dust that's left in the forest. This has all been researched to some degree. In my opinion, the research has got poorer and poorer, and it's, I've got 
scientists backing it up, backing us up on this. Um, we interviewed scientists that had looked into all this research. And unfortunately, as you know how, how it works, the funding goes into, the funding is usually by the people, the industries that want to pursue the money and uh, they get science to back them up. And in New Zealand, most of it's junk science. And we're seeing in areas that are repeatedly poisoned, the demise of native species. Some areas where the poison's repeatedly used, the kiwi are now eradicated. If we look at areas where the poison's never used, and there's very few of those now, but if we look at those areas, the bird life's doing great. There's the odd deer, the odd pig. It's a fantastic forest where the poison is left, where there's no poison. But... Um, but it's a hard battle because it's a big it's a hundred million dollars a year, at least a hundred million here in New Zealand spent on poisoning. There's enough poison spread across our forest to kill over sixty million people every year across our forests and waterways. So it's it's big business, but you know, we're starting to see more and more aquifers, contaminated aquifers. Now no one's saying what it is, but the aquifers this you'll see it like even Queenstown was shut down for six weeks or something. The aquifers there, because they were contaminated. Hawke's Bay, same thing. Other areas around the country, aquifers. Why is this? New Zealand's meant to have the cleanest you know, water in the world, rah, rah, rah. Why are the aquifers being contaminated? And in my opinion, it's more and more poisons are just going, they're dropping so much poison, so much contamination, so it's not surprising, and I think we'll see a lot more of it. So I'll just put that out there. I liked one of the videos, which was deer mouse poisoned at Lake Torpo, mm-hmm. um, the farmer speaks out, and one of the one of the images you had on screen talked about that the manufacturer's recommendations are about not putting it in the waterways, like we were just sort of talking about, and that if any animals um, that have been poisoned and died uh, have to be removed and burnt Correct. or buried at mm-hmm. a landfill. For hazardous waste. Correct. Now, <laughs> look, that that starts ringing alarm bells straight away. If that's coming from the manufacturer, how are these? How's it getting through? Like, I understand it's an industry, but for me, we have our animal rights activists over here, and I'm sure you do over there as well. But where I don't, mm. I, this is this should be sort of common ground that we should all be up in arms against saying, hey, for animal welfare, it's a terrible way for an animal to die. Um, secondly, for an animal to be left on the landscape when the manufacturer themselves is saying, don't do it, this is how you should be disposed of the animal. But we're turning a blind eye to that and saying, oh, we'll just drop it anyway and it'll be fine, just play on. Look, it's bizarre. Uh, we pull our hair out. We can't understand what's really going on. But then we look, we drill down into it a little bit. And you, if you look, and this is public knowledge, you can look this up yourself into the, the um, company's office here in New Zealand. The government actually owns the poison factory <laughs> that imports 1080. The government owns this factory. The government owns the factory that produces the baits. It's a um, state-owned enterprise, and, and they run it to make profit. It seems bizarre. As you talked about animal rights, well, you've got like the forest and bird organisation over here in New Zealand. They support 1080. And it's like, how can forests and birds, they go back to the 1980s, we have information that suggests that forest and bird never supported 1080 because they knew how toxic it was to the the birds they love. These days, they support the use of 1080 because they support Department of Conservation. And in our opinion, they're getting funding or they're getting some kickback 
from the use of it. But um, there's this, you know, incestuous link all through New Zealand. The media, everything seems to be feeding off this hysteria about poisoning. I think it's an anti-life kind of thing. There's a new program going on here in New Zealand, which is called Predator Free 2050, where they hope to get rid of all rats, mice, probably deer, but every introduced animal by 2050. And a big part of that is just saturating the place of poison. It doesn't even make sense. It's not possible. The areas that they have done, like, for example, there's an area in the bottom of the South Island. It's called Olver Island. It's only a small area. I, I, don't, I can't quite think of it. It might be like 5,000 hectares. Off the top of my head, I don't know. It's a small island. It's been airily poisoned with Brodificum, another poison, but similar sort of thing. It's an anticoagulant, ugly killer, but it's the same sort of thing. They just saturate the area kill everything on it, and then hope that they've got them all. Well, it's just been re-poisoned for the third time over the last 15 years because of re-invasions. You see, what I'm getting at is they they try to get rid of all the predators and the pests and the introduced animals, and they end up all they end up doing is killing the native wildlife, eradicating that, and they just never seem to be able to get there. They want to eradicate the whole of the New Zealand. It's like that's insanity to even think such a thing. But it's bat. It's big bucks. It's a billion bucks. You know, goodness knows how much it is into the well into the future. It's big money. And it seems to me that's what this is all about. It's a big industry. It seems crazy. They've fantasized the country into believing that they it can be done. Um, and New Zealand's a small country. There's a lot of it's easy to control the media. It doesn't take much money really to to get influence in the media, and the media is the um, that's the that's the window to people's minds, and you know, fifteen twenty years of bombardment of propaganda in regard to this, and it's worked unfortunately. There's a big big area, big lot of people in New Zealand that are aware, but there's a lot of work to be done to raise more awareness. But as I said, yeah, the government owns the factory that imports the poison and distributes it, so. We're up against the wall there. Two things about what you just mentioned is um, back to the feral goat abatement plan. Part of that plan is influencing the public, basically, to have why goats need to be completely removed from the landscape, taken out, and and whatnot. So essentially, it's the propaganda of being able to convince people that don't know. So painting it in one one way, and the you know the goat abatement plan. The there was I think. Hunters were mentioned once, maybe twice in the document. Then we go back to the Feral Deer Action Plan and very limited use of hunters was in there. It was all mainly professional shooters culling out of helicopters. But what they did mention is when they changed it because there was such a big outcry from hunters and saying, you know, we should be part of the solution. Uh, what they basically did was talk about how hunters waste time and aren't as effective because they might stop to take meat off the animal um, instead of just shooting them and leaving them there to lay down. Now, one of my arguments has always been if we're talking about just shooting and leaving, that it's going to contribute to the pest population because the other pests on the landscape are going to have a viable food source, which just makes it worse. It does seem very crazy when you sort of take a step back and look at this and go 
should we be doing this? Should we be going, as you, as you sort of mentioned, the idea of completely eradicating any introduced species is damn near impossible. At some stage, we I think we need to be a bit more pragmatic and go, okay, they're on the landscape. Yes, we need to keep the numbers to a minimum or within a certain amount, but what are the options for this? What are what could potentially be a resource and use them and view them as such? Because that potentially can give money back to the economy. It could also create jobs and even feed families because I don't know over there how your economy is going, but over here, our interest rates keep going up. You know, we are paying more and more money for just to survive over here and and people are feeling the pinch. The fact that we're even talking about dumping poison for game meat where that could be what people are living on because it is getting so expensive over here just is insane. Yeah, so look, I'm of the belief I'm more of a creationist than an evolutionist, but if we look at this as being evolution, you know, as a pro, it's the same here. So we have some native birds here, and we have endemic birds. The native birds have been here for like over a hundred years. It could be the fantail. I can't think of a couple of the other species, but they're considered natives, right? Because they've been here a while, but they don't. They're not considered to have an impact on the environment or anything like that. But you know, these some of these animals have been here for over 100 years. Deer were introduced into New Zealand in the 1800s. Um, possums soon after. In my opinion, the possums are not a big issue. Uh, they can be managed easily enough in this country by ground management. There was a you know, fur industry, but, you know, a lot of people object to that. But whatever the thing is, it's about targeting. And I think management and adaption to these animals is the best best way to go forward, not mass poisoning. Um, it gets out of control, as you say. It's it's a lot of wastage, but it's it's dangerous, and it's you don't know where it ends. You see, and you don't know the impact you're having on native wildlife. You really have to care about the native wildlife. For example, a deer and a goat in the in your outback. What's the impact it's going to have? It's going to eat some stuff. Deer light browsers, goats are a bit more rough, but they'll, you know, eat back some of that nasty stuff. But if you have poisoned goats and deer in the environment, it's a far bigger impact. So that's something that you need to look at. So, so it's management, adaption, and consider it as evolution. You know, we all hear about evolution. Well, you know, the world's getting smaller. The animals are here. We just need to try and manage them. I think, and steer away from eradication. You know, it's just not rational. Yeah, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast with Joe Rogan and Adam Greentree the other day and they were talking, they were looking at Aboriginal artwork and on there, there was some drawings of potential, they look like deer, to be honest, that Aboriginal people had drawn before white, white settlers had arrived in Australia. And it was like, well, you know, we don't know how long back, you know, we weren't there. We're guessing for a lot of these things and and. You know, you do have to wonder what species were here, what species weren't. There's been so many different species over time. So that plays an element to it. I, I'm i really confused in this country. I love Australia, don't get me wrong, but I'm super confused. We talk about eradicating, you know, the deer and the goats, but we are happy to keep horses on the landscape 
even though they're not native, because there's some misinformation out there that they came back from the wars and, and that's the genetic lineage that are up in the snowy mountains of New South Wales and, and Vic High Country. Then we talk about trout and I want to talk to you about trout because we breed them to release them here, uh, which is very interesting seeing that technically they are an introduced species and we're more than happy to profit off that and push that out into the landscape. But over there, this is another concern because I do like trout and uh, one of my favorite things to eat is smoked trout. Over there, you had a video about trout being mass poisons. How did that all work? Well, that was really just to identify the issue where the poison baits are dropped directly into the waterways. Uh, Trout will uptake some of those cereal baits, but what was happening is they'd target rats and mice with the aerial operations. The mice tended to gravitate towards the waterways, jump into the waterways, while they were poisoned, and the trout were eating them. And so there was an impact on, and that's that slow latent period thing. Trout can be actually carriers of 1080 poison within their system. They have a a big tolerance for the poison, apparently, and fishermen can catch the trout and uh, take trout and potentially be sublethally poisoned. So it was about raising that issue and and that's what's happening here in New Zealand. Trout, yeah, we, yeah, like you say, um, release trout here as well. It's a big industry. Trout fishing in New Zealand's fantastic. Some fantastic rivers, and um, that needs to be protected as well. But uh, over here, when there's an aerial operation, it goes through the waterways and the and the forests. So no one really knows where the poison ends up. And so that's that's the idea of raising that issue with those trout. And there's been some research on trout. I think it was included in that clip, which is interesting for people who are interested in uh, fishing in areas where they use poison. Yeah, most definitely. It was one that caught my eye. And, and even when you had in there that, that the Department of Conservation said that the trout trace levels were over the limits that people could should consume. Yep. So, um, look... You mentioned the, um, the Food Standard Authority, whatever they are. Yeah. Yep. They, some of their um, ratings are not good enough. It's just a bit too, they're targeting 1080 poison is, is toxic at very low levels. And um, especially to um, infants, et cetera. So if a mother is eating a slightly contaminated animal or fish or whatever, that it can impact on the um, unborn. So it's not enough research done into that. So, yeah, there's got to be more care taken. Well, on that, when you talked about the two and a half baits for an adult human, which equates to 30 grams, mm-hmm. that's for an adult human. Mm. So if you're talking a toddler that eats game meat, my kid eats game meat and he's three. Yeah. I've got two one-year-old twins who they will probably be dabbling in that as well. Uh, that concerns me again because there's not, as far as I'm aware, I couldn't find any figures of what the toxicity level should be for toddlers or smaller people. No. So here in New Zealand, there's 1080 poison bait, which is aerially dropped. And then there's brodificum poison, which is in the same cereal. And that's used in bait stations. And it's used widely in some areas. And the issue with that is it kills the possums, it kills the rats that eat from the bait stations. But the pigs uptake those. They eat the pigs, eat the rats and the possums, and they become contaminated. 
And so you have this effect over here where there's no warnings really for, for those bait stationed areas and um, people are harvesting pigs and taking away pigs that aren't fatally poisoned because brodificums are different poison to 1080. They can tolerate more of it, but it's, it's retained in their bodies. The brodificum, and it builds up over time and eventually kills them and they bleed to death. So they, it's an anticoagulant poison. So that's a poison that's used in this country and it's a sublethal poison, if you like, that, ha- that accesses the food chain much easier than 1080. So it's just it's the risks. Of, I, wouldn't eat, I don't eat wild food in New Zealand, apart from areas where we know, we just know there's no poison. So we don't, we won't, we just won't go any, most of the areas in New Zealand, most of the state forests and the national parks are now poisoned, 80%. Every three years, it's a sort of a three-year cycle, two to three-year cycle, and uh, it's just ongoing and increasing. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think such a accomplished hunter such as yourself and a, a family um, lineage of hunting because your dad was a guide, I believe, and that's how you and your brother sort of got into it and started down that track. Yeah, fa- father was a um, professional deer hunter in the Urawera National Park uh, for many years, and so he would his, his the way he made money was to shoot deer, carry them out of New Zealand's rugged country, the Urawera National Park, which is all forest, steep country, wet, lonely. But that's what he'd do, hunt them, carry them out on his back and sell them. And he that's what he loved. He liked the outdoor life and he was good at it. <laughs> it always amazes us how he did it. And uh, and that was his life. And um, so, yeah, we just grew up and learned from him. And um, But the Euro, the Euro, interestingly, the Eurowera National Park is one of the few areas that most of it hasn't been poisoned yet. And that's one of the few areas where we find the great kiwi populations, wild kiwi, and all of the other native species that should be there are still there. And there's the odd possum, the odd deer, the odd pig, just all in low numbers now. They seem to level themselves out. And and it's a fantastic forest without poison. It's interesting. Some people will say that's anecdotal evidence. But it is. It is, but like boots on the ground that have been on the landscape and seen it, for a long time. Yes, observation is a big part of science. I like for, You can have all the theory you like in the science, and I, I keep saying it to these guys that present this research. It's theory, theoretical. They make these assumptions. It's, and then I say, well, we, we need to go out and check this into the actual field. You've got to check it. And when you go out there to check it, it doesn't line up. It's not linear. It's, it's the opposite of what they say. So observation is a big part of this. And it's it's the only way you really get to know what the outcomes are going to be. And so what we've done over the years, we've been filming and we've filmed a lot of stuff. You know, we've got a long list of 1080 films and documentary short films. A lot of work's gone into that. And we have a lot of work in the hunting field as well. These days we mainly um, roar our stags in over here and to the camera and let them go, you know, let them run and let someone else have a go at them. But um, yeah, we're releasing some more footage soon too on our on our YouTube channel, which people will enjoy. But yeah, we, we love to see the wildlife in the forests because the forests can manage it. It doesn't need to be just birds. You know, it's they've been the, these animals have been there for years, especially in this country, and 
in my opinion, they should be made native, some of them, especially the deer. I always sort of look at it from a, you know, I try and take a step back and look at the, the pros and the cons from all different angles, from people that would be hunters, people that are not really caring, and then people who are against, you know, more the animal activism side of things. And one of the things I don't think people tend to do is think about managing the species. Like they talk about kangaroos and talk about kangaroos and their population numbers and whatnot, but they also don't take into account that they compare it to pre sort of colonization when there wasn't farmland. And what happens when we have pasture and farmland is kangaroos. That's a really great feed source. They're going to overpopulate the area they need to be controlled and we don't tend to have the predators on the landscape to do that other than humans and yet we're not really allowed to. Yes, there's tags and things like that, but it's it's very sort of micromanaged. And then you could also argue about the crocodiles up north is that they've become a protected species and they're just out of control, the numbers that are up there now. It's very interesting when you hear about all these things. And if you're out there listening, guys, I'll have all the links on the podcast on the show notes for, for Clyde and the Graph Boys and TV Wild. I'll have it all up there plus their website so you'll have be able to click over and go straight over there to access their stuff. On that, one of the videos I was watching, geez, I loved how you, you called in a, uh, a red stag and uh, he came barreling in, got very, very close to your brother, I think it was, and, and saw his cheeks before he took off. But uh, that was really cool. I haven't had the experience of hearing a red stag roar in person yet. I've only only on what I've seen on uh, on YouTube and TV. So I'm uh, hopefully might get the chance to get out there and hear one this year. Oh, sorry, next year I should say. Yeah, yeah, next year in March, April, May. Um, nothing like it. We never get sick of it, and <laughs> the closer the better. That's what we do, you know. And um, if a stag attacks us. Steve usually has the camera, and I say, you know, just keep filming. Um, it's got to be good, you know. So we've got some good footage coming up. So we're roaring the stags into a few metres. And New Zealand, the stags are very sort of sensitive, very scary. They're hunted all year round. Anyone can hunt them. You can come over to New Zealand, get a permit at the Department of Conservation for no cost to hunt deer on public land, and, um, and away you go. America, of course, you know, we look at Australia, we look at New Zealand, America has a high number of deer. America has great deer, elk and whitetail and moose, but you don't hear them bleating on about their deer, do you? You, you, They've got their tag systems, they've got their systems sorted out, they've got massive country there, but the deer aren't out of control, they don't complain about that. I know that you could could say they're native there, but... The point is, I think a system of, you know, the government maybe in Australia could consider allowing hunters, you know, whether it's a tag system or whether you pay, however it is, to go into the national parks, go hunting, you know, and um, and shoot a few animals and keep the population in check. That's that's the best way. That's the friendly way of doing it. That's going to be the best for the best outcome for the wildlife and the people. You go down the road of poison. And I promise there's going to be problems. There's going to be cover-ups. There's going to be issues. There could be terrible things that can happen. So I just hope you don't go down that road. I know that 1080 is used in Australia. Nothing like it is in New Zealand. 
but it's still used there and it's it's not a good way of management in my opinion. I couldn't agree with you more. I've been a very big vocal advocate of the North American conservation model and their tag system. And that is generally what someone will say in response to that is that, yeah, deer are native over there. And it's like, yes, they're native over there, but they're now here. They're pretty well on the ground. Um, to be able to remove them is going to be near impossible. So why not change the thinking and go, well, let's use them as a resource. Let's use a tag system um, in national parks, open it up to hunters, especially that, you know, I, uh, on a previous podcast, I had Mark Latham who was running for as a political candidate over here. And one of the things he was saying is open the national parks. And he had some stats that 90% of national parks weren't really used. I can't remember exactly, so don't quote me on that. But that is a way of actually having public lands utilised and accessed by people who are paying taxes. Then you've got the opportunities where, you know, as I mentioned before, maybe a bait station, you could shoot off the bait station. It's not hunting per se, but hey, at the end of the day, we're trying to keep numbers down and the meat's going to be utilised and money's going to get put back into the system for conservation. That's very similar to what's happening in North America. For me, it's there is so much opportunity, but we just don't seem to be getting thought about it just seems to be hey let's go down this poison route because it's quick and easy and i'm guessing it's cost effective because we got some figures on how much aerial culling costs and it's not cheap but having someone just fly over with a helicopter and just dump baits and those baits stay on the landscape for a pretty long time it's more cost effective than an aerial color you know, I, I, I am very, very concerned that this is where it will go and that we're not doing enough as hunters and conservationists and even environmentalists to oppose this happening here in Australia and learning from what's going on in New Zealand. But that also, then I look at over there what's going on and exactly what you're saying that you're very vocal and I love the work that you're doing and what you're the content that you're producing and putting out there but it's not backed up by the government that there's that disparity between yourself and what you're seeing on the landscape and what they are. And you probably find that they're probably sitting in an office in a desk that they've uh, never been out on the landscape and they have no idea when it's very clear from your footage, you can see what animals are eating the 1080 baits. Yeah. So that is the case. Most of the, most of the people involved with making the decisions have never stepped foot off a track in their lives. Um, and they just dismiss uh, as so-called anecdotal evidence, but the evidence I say that is so important, which is out there in the field. But um, I do think something's going to need to be done in Australia. You're going to have to come up with some sort of management plan. Um, deer will, you know, they, they love the landscape there. They do well, and they breed, and they breed slowly to start with, but once they get into higher numbers, those populations increase quite quickly. So management, you need to get on top of the management, but you need to do it in a clean, environmentally friendly way and a community friendly way because what the poison does is it does cause division among your communities. People are impacted with poisoning incidents and, yeah, it's not a, it's not a good outcome as we see here in New Zealand. So on that note, Matt, thank you for the opportunity to have a chat. and. You'll put the website stuff up there, our, our website, tv-wild.com. I will indeed. The Graph Boys YouTube channel, Graph Boys being one F, and uh, I look forward to getting to Australia soon. 
Clyde, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I will put everything up there for all our listeners to access it and keep producing such great quality content and the documentaries and things that you're doing. And uh, I hope to see some of that from over here in Australia in the future, mate. Yeah, well, it's it's had a big impact on us um, over here. We're um, blacklisted from a lot of stuff and, uh, you know, we it comes with the territory, unfortunately, when you're up against powerful organisations. But we believe what we've done is the right thing to do, raise awareness, show the truth, and that's where we are. So we've got a few years, hopefully, left in this to do, produce some more outdoors stuff, and that's what we hope to do. Let's hope it's not all about battling against these uh, poisons. No, it looked fantastic, and I wish you all the best in the future with it. Again, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, all you can do is keep flying the flag and doing the best you can out there in the community. So thank you again, and good luck with it. And thanks for that, and uh, keep an eye out for our, our new um, video clips that uh, will load soon before the raw, and enjoy. I most definitely will, and I'm sure our listeners will too. All right, Clyde, thanks for that, and listeners, bye for now. If you have a topic, guest, question, or any gear that you want to hear about on the podcast, shoot us an email, australianhuntingandbeyond at gmail.com. Alternatively, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All the links are in the show notes. If you haven't already, make sure you give us a review and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.